everyone, this is Pastor Jasmine here at Kirk in the Hills, and I'm joined today by our theologian in residence, Dr. Andy Root, for 2019. We're very excited to have you, so thanks for joining us this weekend. It's wonderful to be here. It's uh, an amazing building. Right? Yeah, yeah, you did a little tour. Just and... a little tour. It's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, this used to be, you know, the main office of the former pastors and the, the man who built this. This was a home, and so uh, Pastor Nate often says, welcome home. So. Yeah. This can be a home whenever you come to Michigan for you. It's, it's beautiful. Like. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. So you're talking about Bonhoeffer a lot this weekend, but you've done a lot of different scholarship throughout your your career. So can you just kind of give, I? it's hard for me to introduce you because you've done so much. So what is your main introduction? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I have kind of, I guess in some ways written in a, a, a kind of breadth of a lot of different areas that I've been bringing in different issues to pick up. But I think it's fairly like I, I only have one big idea that I'm trying to unpack and then I just keep unpacking it in, in a different way. Um, and the big idea that I'm trying to wrestle with and probably will wrestle with till the end of my career is, is I mean, to say it kind of theological nerdy is, is the concreteness of revelation, which, you know, no one cares about that. But to think about how it is that concretely in day-to-day -day life people have some experience of the presence of God mm. particularly how do they encounter the living Jesus Christ in their yeah. midst and so all of the different projects that I've been on um, or that I've worked on have, have tried to kind of come back to that um, single construal that I make where I, I really see human encounter of relationships that are quite deep to be a place where where that occurs. Mm -hmm. um, so my primary question just is where is that? How do we explore that? Why is it hard for people, even people in churches? Why is it really hard even for pastors to have an imagination mm -hmm. for how a living God um, that comes to us in a resurrected body of Jesus Christ, like how that becomes so obscure, it, it, it's hard even for pastors to talk about, right. at least in the main line. Um, why is that? So the big why question, but then it's also like, how can I constructively build a theological project that tries to answer that question, but never outside of people's lived experience, mm -hmm. whether it's in a congregational setting or just the fact that we have Netflix or something. Like, you know, just these, the, the kind of cultural reality we're in, right. I, I want to try to ask that question inside of, inside of that situation. Yeah. So a lot of your, especially early, or maybe kind of jointly, but you start with youth ministry. Yeah. So what is it about youth that kind of help you get to that revelation of God question? Yeah, I mean, that it, it's interesting because, you know, I've been, I've been at this um, for, you know, over 15 years now. And youth ministry is something I come back to in the chair that I'm in, at the, at the institution I teach at, is uh, that's a focus. And I do spend a lot of time going around the country and the world talking to people who are going to be doing some kind of youth work. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, really, ultimately, it goes back to that question that my, my real interest is a theology of ministry. Mm. But I think there's something just dynamic about people who are working with young people. To, I, I think that the immediacy of the question of the concreteness of revelation, again, right. to, get, uh, yeah, to, to go back to that convoluted right. fridge, is really right there with those kind of people. Yeah. You know, what do you say to a 15-year-old who really wants to know, well, where is, where is Jesus Christ? And we'll, and we'll maybe confront their confirmation mentor or something with that question, mm -hmm. which maybe their parents won't. Their parents right. maybe are too busy to care or... They the filters up, too. Yeah, like filters up. Yeah. Maybe it's not appropriate to ask someone that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they don't want to be perceived as 
someone who's, who asks strangely spiritual questions. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why they may not ask that. Where it feels like young people and then youth ministry becomes a really interesting place to think about maybe these very concrete theological questions that are addressed towards our lived experience. So I always come back to it and find a lot of freedom in it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's been a blessing to me just personally. I think it's, as opposed, you know, I think everyone has a choice at some point when they're thinking about what academic, where they're going to rest their kind of academic um, focus, I guess. And, you know, for me, it was like, well, systematics or practical theology and maybe a focus on young people. And um, I went that route, and I, I feel very thankful because it's given me, for lack of a better term, an audience of people to talk to, people who are directly engaged in something where if you end up going the systematics route, you get to go to dinner parties, and people think more highly of you, and they're like, oh, wow, that's very interesting. You must be very smart. But most of my friends who did that, there are very few people who call them up to, to, to talk. And so for me to be here... Um, even this weekend, is partly kind of focused on these group of people and having so many wonderful people who have been willing to read what I've written um, because they're on the ground thinking about how do we minister to my own child or the the young people in our church or why does our church only have three or four children in it? What does does that mean? Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So some of the, it feels to me, youth ministry often gets a bad rap, and I've been guilty of this too. Mm-hmm. You you talk about in your book the Peter Pan syndrome, yeah. that youth pastors are, and I totally thought this, of my youth pastors when I was a kid, I was like, they just are overgrown high schoolers, like, mm-hmm. why would I respect you? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I do, I, but I was precocious. Um, but so, but I appreciate that you push back against that, and you say, no, there's actually really deep depth to youth pastors and you talk about how a lot of times in your own experience and in the youth pastors you meet they tend to have kind of this uh, like a wound Mm -hmm. or some sort of I think Mm -hmm. you talk about a mystery Mm -hmm. and how that that draws up the youth ministry and and you can pivot to Bonhoeffer if you want like kind of his wound and what drew him yeah 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 that's exactly where I would go um because I do think I, I do think it's an interesting. I don't know if I'd want to say it's an either or when it comes to kind of thinking about people who get called into or pushed into or encouraged to work with young people in, in congregations. Um, but it is this kind of sense that usually there's a certain illusion I think that happens maybe at the pastoral level, but even within the kind of lay leadership level as they think about calling a youth director or um, a youth pastor even where it, there's this kind of feel like like attracts like. Mm-hmm. So if we can get someone who's like a kid, right. maybe even is a kid, because that would be a lot cheaper. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah. you can get the 23-year-old who just got out of uh, got out of their undergrad in engineering, but they were great at their, you know, at camp. Right. Best counselor at camp. So let's just have them be the youth pastor of the church. And so the idea, of course, is we want to just... And I don't want to be negative towards this or, or kind of... Uh, deconstructive totally of this. I have a 15-year-old son now, and I understand the anxieties behind this. But usually it is this kind of sense, like, if we don't have someone who can essentially make a pitch for them, like a young person who seems cool, who seems relevant, who can grab their attention, then they'll leave and they'll never be here. And then who knows what will happen when they're out there. You know, drugs pulled into Breaking Bad and selling meth or something, you know, like anything could, anything could happen. And I get that anxiety, but we do have this kind of sense of like attracts like, 
what I what I've tried to push towards, and I think why what you know back to my own kind of story, what kind of keeps me really interested in the younger generations of people, and I've never done like an empirical study on this, but I, I think it would be interesting and maybe would yield similar, or maybe would would yield results to my hunch, is that the people who are kind of in this long term or who do really significant ministry and especially kind of see their practices embedded in an imagination for how God moves within it, often do that ministry out of a sense of, as a young person, having encountered the presence of God in a certain way, I call it the mystery of God's presence, or, and usually, and this is just kind of my theological bent, that usually comes out of some kind of death experience, mm-hmm. some kind of loss of parents went through a divorce or, or something like that. So the Bonhoeffer connection is that, you know, Bonhoeffer throughout his whole career, and hopefully this is the contribution that my book makes on Bonhoeffer's youth worker, is that really from 1925 when he's 19 and starts the ordination process until 1939 when the war breaks out in full force, all the ministry that Dietrich Bonhoeffer does is either with children or youth and some young adults. He's, he's a chaplain of the, of the technical college. Um, at one point as well, but it's all with younger generations of people, and he's called on so many times to talk about younger people and advocate for younger people, whether it's at the synod level or whether it's you know we're gonna, we're doing a radio addresses on the younger generation. We want you to do one of the radio addresses. So he's always kind of he, he, that's always on his mind. It's it's a passion for his, but I really think it does go back for him to um, uh, to World War One when he was only twelve years old and his second brother. Um, he has three older brothers, and the second one, the two oldest, went to the front to fight, and the second one ended up dying of his wounds. His mm-hmm. name was Walter. So Walter dies. And what's fascinating, why I draw out that I think this is so significant, is that Dietrich was supposedly a lot like Walter, where mm-hmm. the other two boys were much more like right. his father, who was yeah. very kind of rational and not anti-religious, but very kind of cold to religion. The other boys were atheists, agnostics at best. Walter was much more artistic, like his mother, who all the kind of religious energy that went into the family came to the maternal side. You talk um, about he got Walter's Bible. Bible. And right? that's, yeah, that's the biggest piece, yeah. is that he's got Walter's Bible, and supposedly the inside cover still has Walter's name. It's Walter's Confirmation Bible. Yeah. So you kind of think of him writing, you know, follow by the cost of discipleship mm-hmm. with Walter, you know, paging through the Sermon on the Mount with Walter's Bible. Yeah. You know? There's always a shadow of of that experience he right. had. And then his you talk about his parents' reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost yeah. just as traumatic. Yeah, I mean probably in a, like a beautiful room like this in, in you know their 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 Berlin uh, Grenwald uh, house, his father disappeared into his study and didn't I mean he came out, but essentially emotionally didn't come out for a year and a half, and, mm-hmm. and his mother actually was so broken she had to leave the family because her grief was so heavy, and move in with a neighbor and kind of be nursed um, back, back, back. And yeah. and these are good kind of Prussian Germans. We don't have like write ups of how mm-hmm. they felt. Right. You know what I mean? We we just know that that this occurred. So you imagine being twelve years old and hearing your mother just grieve as this as this um, as the document comes that your brother's dead and then she, he's not there and. You know, the Bonhoeffer family was a quite privileged family, so there were still, um, the governess was around, and cooks were around, and the chauffeur was around. So there, there were adults around. It's not as if he was uh, raising himself or something, but his parents were essentially absent for that, that, uh, when he was 12 years old. And, and I just don't think, I think for Bonhoeffer, it's just ingrained in his consciousness that 12-year-olds, that young people have deep questions mm-hmm. and deep experiences that they have to reckon with, and they have to seek for God in and through 
and that we should never ignore those. And actually, they can teach us something, and they even maybe beckon to us to to be present within them and and, and find something profound, maybe. Right. You, one of your other books is called The Grace of Dogs. Uh, yeah. So I wonder, did you intentionally, like, what inspired what? Because there's this famous story of, yeah. of um, Bonhoeffer and, and I'm going to tell that story yeah. tonight, yeah. actually. Yes. Okay, yes. well, yes. I don't want to, I don't have to spoil it. But did that inspire, like, what drew you, I guess, to bon, study Bonhoeffer? And, and did it come before other things? or? Yeah, I mean, for me, Bonhoeffer came really early on. And, it, you know, in some ways, I have one big question I'm trying to articulate, and I found myself with many different dialogue partners trying trying mm -hmm. to get into this from Charles a philosopher, Taylor. yeah, from Charles Taylor to Edward Jungle to Karl Barth here and there to you know New Testament scholars, uh, you know, uh, Eastern Orthodox people like John Tazoulas. Like I, I wanted to find all these people, but Bonhoeffer never kind of completely leaves me, mm -hmm. um, and it's similar. I mean, the way he's trying to answer questions, I think ultimately I. I'm, I'm trying to build off of that, but it, uh, it also just is really biographical because um, when I was in seminary in Southern California, I got asked to be part of a big Presbyterian church there and, and part of the, they, they had this, they needed an outreach youth director basically because what happened was one Wednesday night a bunch of kids from the neighborhood mm -hmm. um, in Glendale, California showed up on this church's steps. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, they thought, hey, this is great. Maybe this is even the Holy Spirit moving. Um, but the most creative idea they could think of was, let's hire somebody. <laughs> right. So I was like, you know, 30 hours a week to try to bridge this gap between the kind of classic youth ministry that was going on in the church's basement and these kids from mm -hmm. the neighborhood. And I thought I would, I thought I would ace this job because, you know, I had worked for Young Life and I had read every popular youth ministry book out there. And, you know, my joke always is, I really was the best read smartest, most talented youth worker that I knew about. Yeah, you know what I mean? So I was ready to jump into this and then within a few weeks I just I had it, it the the issues that I was confronting, no one had no book I had read had, had you know told me what to do with these. Where these kids were from the neighborhood, they lived in uh, just had more economic challenges than kids that I'd ever worked with before, but mainly I mean they had gangs in their neighborhood and things like that. They just weren't really sure if I was really there for them or they kinda knew that I was just on a hustle to get them. I was just trying to build the youth group. Like, they could kind of pick that up. Right. And so they would push me away. But then things even got... They would show up at, like, 3 and stay till 11 because they didn't know where to go. It was a place to hang out. The reason they were there in the first place was it was perfect to hang out. And people would bring pizza out to them. I was like, why wouldn't you hang out there? Um, but then, you know, they had to do, like, the over-60s Bible study the same night. Mm -hmm. And these kids would just... I mean, this is like the late 90s, so it's, it is like, uh, if you watch like the Joan Hill movie, I think it's called the mid-90s or the late 90s, <laughs> okay. you can stream it on uh, Amazon Prime, where it's just, there was, especially in Los Angeles, there's just a raw kind of skateboard culture, and these kids are like, yes, these that. kids are like this raw skateboard culture, and they would harass these old people as they would go in to church. And so then it just became a big, it became a big thing. And, yeah. you know, there was spray paint and there were some rumors that people were selling marijuana and, you know, all sorts of things happened. And the whole kind of ethos of the church transitioned from, we need to reach out to these kids, we want to witness the depth of the gospel of these kids, so they have to, this is our church and they have to respect our church. And if mm -hmm. they don't respect our church, yeah. they can't be here. And then I remember having that conversation and looking out the church window and there was like an apartment building across the street and one of the kids that was showing up was this kid, George. Um, and George literally lived, like, right there. And most of the people who came to the church and put money in the offering plate lived 
up in the foothills and would drive down into more of this urban center of this this church. And so like big questions just started to dawn on me. Like, I never thought if I do academic work, I'd be like a sociologist or something. Yeah. Um, and I still have such big interest in culture and things like that, but I didn't think theology would be where I'd really want to focus. And then these questions just started to hit me. Like, well, if that's George's apartment, and he like lives literally within a stone's throw away, whose church is this? Right. And what makes it whose church? And yeah. So it was during that time, and then just the kind of struggling with how do you do ministry with people who refuse your, your ministerial contact but continue to ask for it by showing up. Mm-hmm. It was bringing Bonhoeffer that all of a sudden this started. Mm-hmm. I, he just became a dialogue partner. Yeah, because he has a uh, similar thing too. He kind of yeah. took those kids off the street. Yeah, and, I don't and, know if that's the right way of phrasing it. but Well, he takes an out-of-control confirmation class, yeah. but in a very kind of uh, difficult area of Berlin um, called the Wedding District, and he's, yeah. These kids are, um, yeah, so it, there were similar, right. but the way he wouldn't even talk about relationships, I mean, I, I was so ingrained to think about objectives and ends, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, what are you getting these kids to? How, what, you're, you're building a relationship for this end, you're doing this event for this end to get right. there, and reading Bonhoeffer really liberated me, mm-hmm. because, again, I mean, what's fascinating about kind of thinking about the, this end is that Jesus really only becomes kind of an example that can frame and maybe motivate your engagement to get to a certain end. But there's no real sense of the almost kind of sacramental sense of Christ's presence within Mm. this. And Bonhoeffer has a deep sense that the relationship itself yields the presence of Jesus Christ. And so that does mean confession, and that does mean direct witness, but it also is something bigger, dare we say bigger than that, that mm. you get you get pulled into it, it becomes an event, an encounter, right. um, that because God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and shares so deeply in the human experience, then sharing in personhood becomes a real manifest experience of the living presence of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So to see that concretely, and it, it, it became very kind of Luther for me, like the the freedom of the Christian in some sense, instead of like the justifying work of God for Luther, it's like I don't have to do any works anymore. The God's justifying work um, does this for me, and then it calls me into something out of the surplus of this gift that I've been given. And um, for me, even in the context of ministry, it's kind of like that. Like yeah. instead of thinking, what do I have to do to do good ministry? There's a deep sense of what do I have to be, or mm-hmm. or who am I called into to encounter here and. Um, and trusting that something profound happens with, within that. Right. Well, that is just a little bit of a teaser, I feel like, into some of what you'll be talking about this weekend. Yeah, and, and we never got into dogs. I, no, no, we didn't, <laughs> but you'll tell that story, and I'll be excited later. Um, but thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing some of your story and helping us kind of get into relationship yeah. with you a little bit. And uh, looking forward to your, your time with us this weekend. Thanks. Thanks.